the sixth chapter of Bhagavad Gita ends with a very profound conclusion. And what is that conclusion? Of all these different yogis, of all these practitioners of specifically the path of controlling the mind and senses in order not to be entrapped by them in material existence. Of all these yogis, the one that concentrates on Krishna, yogi namapi sarve sam matgatenantaratmana, shravan bhajate yomam same yukta tamo mataha, and of all yogis, the one with great faith who always abides in me, thinks of me within himself and renders transcendental loving service to me. He is the most intimately united with me in yoga and is the highest of all. That is my opinion. Generally speaking, those that practice mystic yoga do so with an aspiration to attain some powers over the material energy. It's a natural byproduct of controlling the mind and the senses that that great power comes to such an individual. And even the jnanis, those that simply use their intelligence to try to discern what is the reality and what is the illusion of existence. The process is called neti neti. It's not this. It's not that not something else. Well, then what is it? What's its nature? So both the jnanis and the yogis, by their practice, there's much benefit to be had on their part, which is a benefit which exceeds, to a great extent, the benefit that's simply available to the, to the person that's trying to enjoy in the world. Basically, the, the personality that's, uh, that's simply taking uh, material existence as it comes to him and is not striving for a greater end, a higher goal. He's simply content with the same life that's available in all the species except in a more glorified manner. So all the different living entities, they, they have their, their position of uh, enjoyment. And we can look at those enjoyments as, as, in general, broad categories of eating, sleeping, mating, defending. And if you look at all the different species of life, that's, if you really break down their existence, moment in, moment out, hour in, out, day in, day out, their whole lifespan, if you really look at it, these four pursuits as outlined in the Vedas are their main life. Eating, they all have to eat, all of us have to eat, even in this species of life, the human species, 
you're not going to make it very long if you don't eat. Sleeping, again, if we don't sleep regularly, well, there's no way to stop sleep, is there? I mean, you just come to a point where it's, can you turn it off? Can you just say, I'm not going to sleep? I'm just going to stay awake? How long are you going to be able to do that? Not very long. Eating, sleeping, mating, defending. Everyone's defending. They're defending their position. And every species of life, there's procreation. Otherwise, none of us would be here. If we live in this body simply for an embellishment of these pursuits, then the great sages point out that there's no, not much difference. You may have some higher intelligence than the animals, so you can cook a variety of foodstuffs as opposed to eating one source. They break the animals down, don't they, into different categories. Those that eat meat, those that eat vegetables, fruits, flowers, like that. So we may have some ability to, to have a wider spectrum. But the bottom line is, it's still just eating. It's still just nourishing the body. And you're not going to be able to live without it. And in some cultures, in some parts of the world, you find that they subsist on one foodstuff, day in and day out. And they're completely content with that. It's only when you get to the, the opulent civilizations that you have a real, real variety. But for the most part, prior to the current age, people ate just the same thing day in and day out. Not much difference there. So when we talk about the yogis and we talk about the jnanis, those people that use their intelligence to try to discern what is matter and what is spirit, what is the object of life, and the yogi who realizes that the object of life is not simply using the senses uh, like the animals use their senses, but rather to take the advantage of more developed intelligence, the body that we have in the human form of life to, to gain mastery over the mind and the senses. They see some real value in that. The consequence of that practice is an enjoyment above and beyond simple sense perception. They actually enjoy to a greater degree. Now we can see that even in a superficial way, can't we? If you look at the intellectuals, those people that, that aren't simply wrapped up in just gross sense gratification, but have tuned their senses and their intellect to a higher degree. We call these, what, the academics? They enjoy to a, a greater extent when they go and they sit and they listen to their symphonies when they go and they listen to a lecture, they hear their intellect, they use their mind to try to explore areas that most people don't. That enjoyment is on a higher level. 
to the higher pitch. Similarly, the yogi, when he sits in meditation, when he's when he controls his senses, when he he's not, he basically just like a tortoise, as Krishna pointed out in this sixth chapter, he pulls his senses in. In doing that and mastering his senses, he gets a, an enormous amount of of power naturally. These powers of the yogis are outlined in the Vedas and they're, they're presented uh, specifically uh, uh, Patanjali uh, in his Yoga Sutras uh, talks about the control of the mind and the, the different stages of that control, contemplation and ending in samadhi. And for the most part, these practitioners when these yogic powers come, when they can become smaller than the smallest, larger than the largest, this is this is intellectual. This is also this is a great mis- mystic opulence. It's hard to for us to wrap our mind around what these powers are like. To be able to go in a river at one place and come out far, far away in a distant land. To be able to acquire anything you want, even though I may be here in this, here, at this place, on this continent, if I desire desire some fruit that's available in another continent, with my mind, I can actually acquire that. Uh, Controlling other people well, this we see some residue of in, we see some individuals, politicians, cult leaders, <laughs> sometimes the spiritual master. <laughs> he is able to, uh, to, to di- they're able to direct other people, to lead them, hopefully in a good direction or sometimes in a bad direction. Sometimes they have their own purpose. How do we wrap our mind around someone who has that kind of residue mystic potency like a Hitler? What did he get people to do on his behalf? Or a Kennedy. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Is that it? Or something like that. Or Jim Jones. Hmm, just drink this Kool-Aid. <laughs> Okay. We're all going to die. Woohoo. What what is that? Generally the yogis they get carried away by these powers. Who wouldn't? They're enticing. And the jnanis they get carried away by their by their knowledge. But Krishna here at the end of the 6th chapter, he's speaking about if you can withdraw from sense enjoyment and use your intellect, use your intellect wisely. Use your yogic power intelligently. What? Concentrate on me. Yogi mam, yogi nam, apisarve sam, taratmana. Shradavan, shrada, faith, have faith that this is the proper purpose of yoga. 
Shradavan, bhajate. Put your faith and your bhaja. What? What is this bhaja? What is this? Worship. Yes. Service. Bhajate yoba. Unto me. Same yukta tamo mataha. That's the highest use of such yoga. So throughout this chapter, so many things were given as far as the practice of yoga. And at the end of the chapter, because there is great value in the process of yoga, is there not? There's great value not being swept away by the currents of material existence. There's great power in not being overtaken by the circumstance of the world, but being able to sit and become indifferent to everything that happens. Not that there's not caring, not that. Not that there's not compassion, no. Not that there's not understanding, but there's not becoming overwhelmed by circumstances in this material world. That's the advantage of yoga. That we control our mind, the mind doesn't control us. We control our senses, the senses don't drag us. It's a great thing. Very difficult in this age to practice this, specifically this Astanga yoga. It's a far cry from the yoga that uh, that the westernized civilization looks on as yoga practice. It's not sitting and doing a headstand or doing a couple poses to stay healthy. This is all-out dedication perpetually to control of the mind and senses. Control of the breathing power. Very, very, very concentrated work, diligent, as difficult as uh, any other endeavor, if not more so. So Krishna is applauding this practice of yoga at the end of the chapter, provided we use, utilize that practice, that control, the result of that kind of an activity as an offering to him. All that you do, all that you offer and give away, everything, do that as an offering to me. That's perfect. So similarly, this yoga, do it as an offering to me, do it with me as the goal of its practice, it's perfect. You won't be carried away. It's fine. It's good. It's beneficial. It's impossible in Kali Yuga, but Bhagavad Gita is, is a, it's a broad, broad scripture. And it was delivered at a different time of mankind. And it was also delivered to someone who was not about to practice yoga. But still Krishna brings it up, doesn't he? He brings up the benefit of the practice. Even though Arjuna was not a person that would be practicing yoga. He was a kshatriya. He said, control of the mind? It's more, more difficult than controlling the wind. But Krishna says it is possible 
with practice and detachment. He's outlined in this chapter what is that practice, what is that detachment, and how can one take advantage even from a superficial viewpoint in simply observing what are the practices of a yogi. How, how can that carry over to just that intellectualization of the practice? How can that carry over to a deeper and more profound understanding of the of bhakti? So, so there's some value there. Krishna's bringing it up because it has value. It has value in that we can see that even in bhakti, Detachment from worldly engagement is to our advantage. Moving on. Knowledge of the Absolute. We're coming to the... Now, we're coming to the heart of Bhagavad Gita. We're coming into the center. Eighteen chapters. So we have coming come through the preliminary chapters to give us an overview of and now we're coming into the core chapters. This chapter, Knowledge of the Absolute. The Supreme Personality of God had said, Now hear, O son of Prita, how by practicing yoga in full consciousness of me, with mind attached to me, you can know me in full, free from doubt. I shall now declare unto you in full this knowledge, both phenomenal and numinous. This being known, nothing further shall remain for you to know. So I thought we would chant the third verse. Manushinam sahasresu kaschidya yati siddhai yatatamapi siddhanam yakaschidmam vititatvata out of many thousands among men, one may endeavor for perfection, and of those who have achieved perfection, hardly one knows me in truth. So this prayer, we chant this prayer. I was born in the darkness of ignorance, but my, but my eyes have been opened by the torchlight of knowledge. Uh, and this torchlight of knowledge is the only way that one can acquire knowledge of Krishna as he is. How has this about, come about that when we look to the great transcendentalists, the great yogis, the great jnanis, and we look to their tremendous austerities and lifelong, if not lifetimes of practice. And Krishna says here, out of many thousands of those kind of men, those that are endeavoring for perfection, hardly one knows him in truth. enough to scare you away, make you want to go and run and jump in a hole or something. My gosh. I can't do what they're doing. I can't practice yoga to that level. I'm not a great thinker or logician. 
I can't pronounce even these mantras. Uh, I'm not good at any of these things. I can't do yoga. I can't think right. I have a hard time putting one foot in front of the other, but yet here I am, chanting Hare Krishna and trying to be Krishna's devotee. And then I read this verse where Krishna says, well, out of so many people that are trying to be perfect, hardly one knows me as I am. Hardly one knows me in truth. What's my hope? I have no hope. I have no... How can I even put my mind around a possibility. It's like a dwarf. That's a little short person trying to jump up and catch the moon. This is very difficult. Impossible. This is a little person. The moon's so far away and he's trying to jump and catch the moon. But yet here we are. We're trying to catch the moon from our dwarf-like position. Not great yogis, not great jnanis, not great brahminical chanters of hymns and knowers of all the different slokas and how to pour the ghee on the fire at the right moment, saying it in such a way that it invokes the Supreme. What is our practice? What is this practice of devotional service? What does it comprise of that gives it such a grand standing? So much so that the author, Bhaktivedanta, is saying in the purport here that if we were to look at all these different practitioners who actually decry the practice of yoga, saying it all, oh, that's, that's for those people that can't really get it together. <laughs> that's for the people that don't know, who aren't born in the Brahmin families, like I am. They don't know the mantras and scriptures, like I do. They don't know how to control their senses and their mind. I do. They don't know how to think logically. They don't know how to defeat all comers, but I do. This year, this, these bhaktis, these Vaishnavas, <laughs> yeah, they're just a laughing stock. What is, what is their position in spiritual understanding? What is their position in, in mystic understanding? Who are they? But, when we look at the practitioners, even though their disciplines may be far exceed the disciplines of the devotee, of the Vaishnav. Although their mental capacity may far outreach that of the, the devotee of Krishna. Although in so many ways, they may appear from a material viewpoint to be superior and their practice may be so much more difficult the author here says, well, if bhakti is so easy, why don't you take it up? Why don't you try it? What's the distinguishing factor here? What's the devotee have over you that he can practice bhakti and you can't? What does he have? What is the value of his practice? 
that he, that he has this opportunity and this opportunity is so extremely rare and he can take up the practice and you cannot because really surrender is not that easy of a thing actually becoming das das anudas very difficult very difficult become the servant of the servant of the servant very difficult to sacrifice everything for the Supreme. Very difficult to walk away from all of our opulences, all of our positions offered by material life. I just was just reading in the Srimad Bhagavatam about Dadachi. Anybody remember Dadachi? The Dachi was a great, great uh, uh, soul, and he was a devotee of the Lord, and he chanted uh, the Narayan Kavacha. The Narayan Kavacha is a special application of mantras, just like some of you just got mantras. And these mantras are very, very special. They have a unique characteristic. Some of you just got Diksha. Some of you also got Nama. Just and uh, he had a special Narayan Kuvacha mantra. And if you apply this properly on your body, you basically become in invincible. And uh, he had chanted this mantra to such an extent that he he was extremely powerful spiritually. And the demigods were having a hard time with particular demon which came about by their by Indra's uh, foolishness. They had uh, first of all they defended their spiritual master, Brihaspati. That offended him, so he he went underground. He hid away so they couldn't find him. Without their spiritual master, they didn't have any spiritual strength and the demons could come and take their positions away from them. And therefore, they appealed to Lord Brahma, what do we do? And Brahma said, well, uh, if you go to uh, a certain individual, he'll, he'll give you a, a solution. Let him, be, let him be your priest. And uh, so they went to this individual and uh, he became their priest. But he had a tendency to, when offering oblations to the fire, like you had a fire sacrifice, and, uh, he is offered there. So he would also not only offer offer for the demigods, he would also make some offering for the, for the pleasure of the demons. This upset Indra, and Indra therefore cut off his head. Not a very good situation. So in doing that, uh, uh, this particular, uh, the father of this priest, uh, he conjured up a demon to destroy the demigods. So therefore, the demigods were in distress, so they went to Dadachi, they were told personally by Krishna, 
by Vishnu, who appeared before them because they were in that much distress to appeal to him. Krishna said, well, you go to Dadachi and you ask him to give up his body and you, with, from his bones you can, you can create a weapon, a thunderbolt weapon, and you'll be able to... Def-. So they went to Dadachi. Now imagine being asked, could you give up your body so that we can gain our kingdom back because we offended our spiritual master? And not only did we offend our spiritual master, we cut off the head of his replacement because he wasn't... You know, I mean, it's kind of like a weird thing. So, anyway. And the purports there, and and the understanding of Dadachi's position, this position of sacrificing everything, of actually being able to give up our enjoyment of life for a higher purpose, that's a very rare thing. And that is what Krishna's devotees do. They give up their position. They give up their life's ambition and they take on the order of the spiritual master. And they make that their life's work. And throughout their life they strive according to their capacity to fulfill that instruction. And that is what actually distinguishes them from the great yogis and the great jnanis, the great logicians, the great brahmins, the great priests. That's what distinguishes them. And that is why the process of devotional service, although externally is looking to be so easy, All we have to do is surrender to the spiritual master. Gives us a simple formula. You chant Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. A fixed number of times. Every day you do this. Don't have to stand on your head. You don't have to stand in freezing water in the winter. You don't have to, in the summer, stand in the scorching heat of the sun surrounded by fire. You don't have to go off to the Himalayas. You don't have to give up your family life. All you have to do is follow some simple surrender to the spiritual master. Some regulated concentration on Krishna. Real yoga. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Krishna, please, you save me. I can't do all this other stuff. I'm dependent on you. It seems easy from the outside. But when we talk about giving up our life's ambitions and taking on the order of the spiritual master and living for his pleasure, for his, uh, for his purpose. Now what is his purpose? His purpose is to sacrifice his life for the enlightenment of everyone. The whole process of spiritual life, of devotional service, is a process of complete mercy for other people's benefit. 
The spiritual master is sacrificing for his disciple. The disciple is sacrificing for the spiritual master. All are working under the direction of, at this point in time, Lord Chaitanya and the six Goswamis. To what? To benedict the whole world. And how do we benedict the world? Well, we begin at home. We begin here. We begin purifying our heart. If our heart's pure, then we can have some potency. Then we have some spiritual potency to effectuate change. Other people see. They see the result of our sincere endeavor and that attracts them. Because what? We're becoming Krishnaized. And what's Krishnaized mean? We're becoming all attractive. Why? Because Krishna is all attractive. And everything that Krishna has, Krishna gives to his devotees. Their knowledge, their beauty, their wealth, their renunciation. All these qualities come into the character of Krishna's devotees. And therefore, we're attracted to them and we want to serve them and we want to surrender to them. We know the secret. The secret of our success in spiritual life is pleasing the spiritual master. And when we see Krishna say in Bhagavad Gita, Manushyaham Sahasre Su, many thousands of men come, many thousands endeavor for perfection, many thousands even become perfect, but hardly one knows me in truth. And then we say, well, what, what good am I? What can I do? How can I make any progress? I can make all progress by the mercy of Krishna's devotees, by the mercy of the spiritual master. And what appears to be impossible, mukam karochi vachalam, That, a, that, a, that a, someone who has no capacity, who's a lame man, he can cross mountains. And he's a blind man, but he can see. These, this power, this spiritual opulence, this spiritual perfection is gained by the mercy of the spiritual master, and it's benedicted upon simply someone who is sincere in their practice. Our only requirement is sincerity to attain the goal. Then all perfection will come. So any questions? I'm trying to imagine that we become formless through humility, whereas we have a material form, but our spiritual form is formless, it's it's just it's essence and by that we are imbibable, we are we become fluid, we become sort of the nectar uh, that can be offered to the divine. Mm. You know, well I, I I have a, a little bit of a problem with your presentation okay. in that uh, we are very careful to understand that in the practice of in the practice of bhakti the idea is to actually attain our true spiritual form, which is a form which allows us to do service. So when we talk of formlessness, unfortunately the class of transcendentalists which is attracted to a formless 
conception of spirit soul is generally attracted to that of uh, Krishna's effulgence. We have no desire to enter into that effulgence. In fact, the devotee is is very much uh, fearful of that, as Sarvabhuva Bhattacharya pointed out to Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. He was a great impersonalist, and he had this conception of merging into becoming formless in the spiritual energy and uh, this was his whole consciousness and then he met Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and through their discourse he came to realize that this formless conception of the supreme of spirit of, of spiritual life was was an inferior conception now we understand it's still part of the supreme as pointed out in Srimad Bhagavatam Brahmati Paramatmeti Bhagavaniti Sabjate. The absolute truth has these three aspects. It does have a formless aspect where the energy of the Supreme is, is pervasive throughout both the spiritual and the material uh, realm. Paramatmeti, that that energy is recognized as having cognizance it's not just formless spiritual stuff <laughs> it's conscious spiritual energy so that leads us to a deeper understanding of the energy of the supreme the conception of paramatma the cognizance of the supreme through everything both matter and spirit but the highest understanding is Bhagavan. Brahmati Paramatmati Bhagavan Iti Sabjate. That understanding of the Supreme as to his individuality, that he is a person from whom all these cognitions, all this energy comes but he is in himself distinct and is recognized as Bhagavan with six primary opulences, beauty, strength, knowledge, wealth, renunciation. So, this conception of Bhagavan, Sri Krishna, as the supreme source of all manifestations, both the personal manifestations and also the all-pervasive and impersonal manifestations is there. But for the bhakti, this conception of merging into, it's called sayuja, merging into either the energy of the Supreme or actually merging into his body, they have no desire for this, this kind of liberation. The other liberations they'll accept, although they truly have no desire in them, but they'll accept them if they're advantageous to serving Krishna in love. So they will live on the same planet as Krishna, Salokya, to serve him. They will attain a spiritual form because in a spiritual form they can serve him more easily than in a, than in a material form which is an inhibition upon us. They may even accept the opulences of the Supreme so that they can offer them to him. Sarsti. So, so does the bhakti sadaka, is that the right word? 
Mm-hmm. Um, does that does that individual then not? I'm trying to understand. Does that individual not then want want a form at all? I mean, or does it does want a form? It does. It, it, we do. It attains a form, but the impersonal. Right now we uh, right now we have a, a form. Uh, our sadhaka deha. This is our practicing form. We're practicing devotional service. Unfortunately, it, it, it originated. Our current physical body came from our prior karma, parabdha karma. But once we enter into spiritual life, um, that gradually fades away uh, as far as its influence upon us. There's still some some small influence. Of course, there's there's going to be the influence of growing old and having to throw off this material body. But uh, the Sadaka day is there. But our desire is to, through our chanting, purify ourselves to such an extent that we are invited into our permanent loving relationship with Krishna in one of five primary relationships. And your question is, will we have a Yes, absolutely. We will have a specific form. We have to wait to be invited, like you were talking one day, rather than sort of saying. It's nothing that we can impose, but it's something that certainly will be revealed to us. Whether our relationship with Krishna is one of a servant, or friendship, or parental affection, or even conjugal affection, that will come as we purify ourselves. Cheto Darpanamarjanam. As we continue this process, as we're enlightened by the spiritual master as to how to purify ourselves, and as we listen attentively to his instruction and follow, the more we take that on, the more we push to that goal, the more we chant sincerely, the heart will be purified and that will be revealed to us. So, so that, that basically is a, it's, it's part of the process of serving the gurus that eventually if we reach that level I mean the way I'm feeling this happening is is that everything basically comes through the grace of the guru everything comes yes yashaprasadad bhagavad prasadal by the mercy of the spiritual master one attains all makes all spiritual advancement without his mercy there's no spiritual advancement so yes everything comes by the grace of Sri Guru and Sri Guru comes in a myriad of forms, but primarily at this stage, Guru comes as as, as our Diksha and seeks a Guru. He gives direction, he gives initiation mantra, and he, he has assistants that also help, giving good instruction. Uh, the prior Acharyas are helping, they have given us a wealth of books. Uh, there are Shasta Gurus, Purva Acharyas, prior Acharyas, prior Gurus. And what else? We also have the help of Krishna himself as Chaita Guru within the heart. So at every stage, we're helped at every stage along the way, continually. Uh, we're given good guidance. Now if we're able to take it, the, the advancement will be very, very quick, very easy. And if we are a little reluctant, if we our material conditioning is such, uh, it may take some time. But... Believe me, it will have an effect, this chanting. Yes? And if we understand the Guru as Krishna coming to us, 
in this forum that at least for me helps to inspire me. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm kind of seeing that too. I just want to say it's been one week as of today since my Haryam initiation and I, I, I was commenting to Lola Tamayi last night that I feel I feel different. I, I feel like I feel like when I do things, even when I don't things I don't particularly think are the best things, you know, I'm not perfect, but I feel I feel protected. I feel different. I don't feel burdened as much by the karma. I feel like everything will be okay, and I'm asking myself to just learn from this, and I know it's the grace of the guru. I yeah. just feel it. So there's some reciprocation required on our part for this for this uh, mercy, this this benediction, and the. That is, you have to accept it. And what's that mean to accept it? Well, we have to we have to accept it in in as far as as the reciprocation has to be there. And that reciprocation is it's a two way street. Guru is giving mercy. He's giving protection. He's giving direction. And we have to accept the direction and the and the mercy. And what is that mercy? The mercy is coming in the form of of uh, good guidance. So. If we accept that mercy, that good guidance, then, then yes, we're protected. It's the only way to get out of the material world. Well, Krishna could do whatever he wants. He's free. He's not bound by this this system or that system. In this day and age, we are hard pressed to present this philosophy in a way that society will accept it. Accept it with with such a a uh, rigid presentation. Not that the conclusion is wrong. The conclusion, yes, we understand. The conclusion is correct. Your conclusion is right. But in this day and age, such a presentation, even the presentation of, of my spiritual master, uh, uh, would probably require some modification in order to gain acceptance to the point of someone taking up the practice. I was just on, uh, we have a form of, of uh, Prabhupada disciples where Prabhupada disciples can converse with, you, with each other. Just today I was trying to make this point uh, that yes, there's no question that, the, that things are there in in this practice of uh, Gaudiya Vaishnavism, this cult of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, which leads us as followers to embrace it as the highest conception of the Supreme and the most direct and the most effective. And we're so smitten by it that we want to share it with everybody. But in order to share it we have to share it in a way that society at large is agreeable to at least listen. And if even in that presentation, things may be modified in such a way to get them to begin to, to take up the simple practices of bhakti, the chanting, the hearing. What you say is right, but our presentation does need to be adapted accordingly. And even in the presentation as, as it was made 
30, 40 years ago by my spiritual master, to some extent needs to be adapted to society today, which is, I mean, this is Kali Yuga. Things are moving ahead so fast. What used to take centuries now takes decades. That's how quickly society's there changing. In trying to get people to take to this simple process of chanting, be very nuanced in your approach. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm, told, I'm telling her I completely understand where you're coming from. Yeah. And um, it is a very narrow, quote unquote, path. You know, you mm. have to give up. I don't agree with that. This and that and well, I mean, yeah. It's not a narrow path. There's like so much variegatedness in the devotees, you mm -hmm. know, but, but the rules are strict. That's what I'm talking about. Like, people can't handle giving up meat or caffeine or whatever, you know. So, um, well, I don't agree with that either. I, I have to disagree with you. We see in the, in the preaching mission of uh, even uh, my Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati, Srila Prabhupada's spiritual master, which was at all, even, a, even a time before that, that in trying to have Krishna consciousness presented to, uh, to the intellectuals, so-called intellectuals, but they certainly considered themselves, of the uh, British occupancy of India, uh, he made many concessions. I mean, he, he actually even told his disciples, if you have to buy these people meat, then you buy these people meat, just so they can come and hear. Yes, as we progress, we notice that the, the Vaishnav, he, he takes up the most stringent personal discipline to advance himself, but he becomes the most liberal in trying to advance the cause and have others take up the practice. Well, I just keep thinking there is no other way, you know. There is no other way. They say it three times, you know, in this age of Kali. Yes, this chanting, there is no other way, but if you go out and sh sh scream in the streets, there is no other way, there is no other way, you're probably not going to get many people to chant Hare Krishna. So, yes, what you're, everything you're saying is correct, philosophically, but... We have to become intelligent preachers, and we have to do it in such a way that it's, it's, it's adaptable. That's the position of guru. Guru makes adjustments according to time, place, and circumstance, which allow the practice to go forward. 